listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where each week we have extraordinary uh, solutionaries. Many, there are many films, podcasts, and programs about all the overwhelming, crushing problems in the world, frightening problems. Here's where we talk about some of the solutions, how we can actually change these things and how we can actually uh, step way beyond them into a whole new way of looking at the world that can lift us out of the despair and into an incredible joy at the possibilities we have for coming together as a planet. And today we have a very, very special guest, uh, Eric Sorotkin. Now, Eric is a trial lawyer. He battles in court. He battles for civil rights. He battles for human rights. But he soon found that the battleground version of legal, legal, legal system doesn't really work, that battles don't leave, leave winners. They leave losers on both sides. And he began to evolve some new ways, uh, some new ways of looking at the world drawing from many rich, rich cultures from around the world, from the Navajo, the Sioux, the, uh, the uh, Andes shaman, Hindu mystics, Buddhist monks, tribal elders, and combining that with the wisdom of, of, of Einstein, Martin Luther King, Bishop Tutu, and more. And he's been traveling the world. Uh, he just got back from an amazing trip to South Africa, where it, the key concept that he's talking about developed. Uh, he is the founder of Ubuntu Works, uh, and that's, a, he'll tell you a little more about that in a few moments, but he's also an author of several books, uh, Surviving and Thriving at Work, What Every Employee Needs to Know But Is Afraid to Ask, and then another one, Witness, A Lawyer's Journey from Litigation to Liberation, and that's really what we're talking about today, is that journey, that journey from, from litigation and fighting to liberation uh, he's going to tell us uh, a little more about uh, how he uh, was able to uh, to respect the other sides and bring something totally new into that uh, context. Uh, <laughs> and so before we get to that, though, uh, my actually, I want to start off the questioning with uh, with making a sad announcement. Uh, as you know, this whole podcast is inspired by Gary Davis uh, with his remarkable uh, book, My Country is the World. And it was a remarkable new way of looking at the world as one that gives us incredible power to change the things that seem so hopeless before we discover that power in ourselves. Uh, and uh, in that movie, you may have noticed that his, his, his uh, wife, uh, Esther Peter Davis, uh, is there at the borderline where, uh, where he's trying to go from France to Germany and is stopped by both sides and lives on that borderline for a couple of months. And she gets the townspeople to help him build a, a little hut. And she talks in very moving ways. Well, sad news is that this week she passed away. And uh, we actually just got some of the news this morning and we're, uh, she's in France. Uh, we're, uh, we're very, uh, very sad about that because she is such a remarkable woman. Uh, let me just read you a little bit from the text uh, uh, I got, uh, uh, my mother died in her bed with her three, three surviving children around her. I held her hand and, ha and had my head on her heart. She was 90 years old and 27 days and had a very full life fighting for peace in the environment, 
Right now, she rests in her bed, calm, pretty, and at peace. Uh, what a journey for 90 years. Now, one of the remarkable things she did, <laughs> well, so many remarkable things, when she was a little kid, when she was a, girl, a young girl, a teenager, she challenged, she took on Winston Churchill through some connection, and she challenged him about imperialism. Here's this little kid giving Winston Churchill this big challenge about imperialism. It's a remarkable kind of story. Uh, she also, some of you may know of Bayard Rustin, the famous civil rights activist who uh, there's a movie about, Bayard Rustin. Well, she went with Bayard Rustin and a group of other uh, Quakers and others to the test site where the French were testing the French nuclear bomb in the Sahara Desert. And they went out into the desert and said, if you're going to drop this bomb, you're going to drop it on us. Well, of course, they were rounded up and arrested and had uh, some dramatic adventures. And uh, uh, I guess, uh, Eric, uh, you've had your your uh, own history as a trial lawyer of defending people like that who've taken bold action and uh, and and dared to put their lives on the line. Uh, maybe we could start off the question period. Well, before we do that, I know that uh, Melanie also wanted to share a little of her remembrances of uh, Esther Peter Davis, and then we will uh, move on to uh, Eric talking about uh, his defense of people like Esther. Go ahead, Melanie. Yes, uh, we could talk for hours and hours about Esther. What an honor it was to meet her in Strasbourg, and what a powerful, powerful force, energetic, so interesting, and so full of life. Uh, we thank you, Esther, for your life's work. Um, we we want to send our thoughts to her family. So, yeah. And for those who just joined us, we just uh, spent a little time remembering Esther Peter Davis, who passed away this week. Uh, so to start our question period, Eric, uh, uh, start by telling us a little bit about your work as a trial lawyer and uh, some of the people, uh, protesters like Esther, who you've defended. Well, Arthur, thank you. I, I always have grown, gotten great strength from people who take stances. And whether it was individuals who spoke out against nuclear weapons or who spoke out about uh, the wars in Central America and refugees fleeing. I worked in the sanctuary movement, helping churches and others help with their issues of providing sanctuary. We did, we did trials around uh, people who blockaded first strike nuclear weapons who uh, were faced with charges and we raised international law and we raised necessity defenses and brought in experts to show the risk and the imminent risk. We would, uh, all along the way, even up to now to demonstrations, I've always tried to uh, be there in support of people uh, vocalizing their truths. I even supported some um, uh, people at a Zozobra burning in Santa Fe who were fundamental Christians who got maced and attacked by the police because they were out speaking their mind on a street corner. And I got to learn the sincerity that people bring to demonstrations. And I think whether you agree with an issue or you disagree with an issue, I think that what we can respect is that person holding that space, uh, holding a intention for a better world and they, the, the courage that it takes to do that. Well, you know, law is kind of a, uh, a much more peaceful way of handling our battles than 
physical battlefield, but it's still in the context of a battle. Uh, how, how do you how do you walk within the institutions of that and still uh, maintain that kind of respect you're talking about and uh, and love for the opposition? Well, I first went to South Africa in the early 90s, where we worked on the Constitution with the ANC in about 1991. Mandela had been out of prison about six months, and I had such an impactful experience there uh, through the people I met who had been so consciously looking at a way to transform our world in creative ways and had held a consistent vision for the future. And I came back thinking I needed to change my practice. I needed to do more conflict resolution. I need to perhaps stop going to court. And I did that for some years and, and otherwise. And then I went um, through, I was an election observer in South Africa when Mandela was elected. And we went along with people resolving conflict in the countryside before the election. And I went to... Uh, work on the Truth Commission with Archbishop Tutu and others, where I was coordinating an international monitoring project of the TRC. And that got me thinking about truth and accountability and those elements. And so I gradually worked back into a trial practice, but I brought along a lot of what I learned in South Africa to be this term called Ubuntu, a lot of Ubuntu-based principles into my practice, which are relationship-based principles. And by doing that, I was able to walk differently in the way I looked at the opponents, the way we use a language of peace more than I tore that witness up. We, this is a battle. When you change, you know, conflict is inevitable. And there's the movement called an integrative law movement and other movements and holistic movement, therapeutic jurisprudence, collaborative law. There are all these movements looking at conflict resolution differently, as well as indigenous conflict resolution processes like the Navajo Peacemaker Courts and these. So I began to pull into my toolbox, if you will, principles from all of these areas. And that really helped me walk differently in the courtroom. I even did a process using the Chinese five elements in the practice of law, seeing conflict as imbalance and how do we approach it? Because if we always approach from fire, we're not necessarily going to be successful in a conflict and resolving a conflict. So there's great tools out there. And those kind of things really had an impact on how I walked even today as a trial lawyer. I'm trying to picture you in a courtroom uh, with the judge there and you're, you're pulling out of your, out of your uh, bag of uh, wisdom. Uh, some 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 different ways of doing things. How did that shake up judges and the people around you in the courtroom? <laughs> Any story? Well, yeah, well, there are some stories uh, that are probably too long to go into here, but there are there are stories where um, I had a very conservative judge on a civil rights case in southern New Mexico. Someone everyone didn't like because he was very hard on criminal defendants and otherwise. And we had a discrimination case against the city of Albuquerque. And I took a different approach to him. And I really went in with an open heart. And when I went into an open heart and I released my pre-political judgment of the other side, I um, all of a sudden we had this amazing trial experience with this federal judge who was, um, invited us back in chambers, told us if we wanted to exercise at lunch, we could do a spit bath in his sink. And he was <laughs> like, um, 
he just, um, it was around September 11th. It was a year after September 11th, uh, 2001. And we, um, we all on both sides did a prayer on the courtroom steps for the victims of 9-11 and with some jurors. And then we went back in the courtroom and we tried this case. And he ended up being very fair, listened well. And I think part of that was a result of my, um, my opening up to him and not coming in with the battle attitude. And it made me connect with jurors in a different way because jurors are human as well. And if you believe Ubuntu, which means I am human through my relations with others, what I do to you, I do to myself, then um, they're not so separate. And if you approach people through that filter, everything changes. So all of a sudden, we were like all on the one side. Uh, the defense lawyer even spent more time over talking with us than, it, than her clients. And it was, uh, it was in certain ways, a, uh, I think a, it, it brings an element of healing into the practice of law, which is really one of my goals. Wow, that is so beautiful. I, I, that, that kind of chokes me up. What a way, what a different way to handle our battles. Uh, uh, and uh, gosh, we look at our world today and the way it's torn apart with, with threats and battles that escalate seemingly potentially to eliminate the entire species of life on earth. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you see as the ways some of these principles that you are learning can, can kind of uh, ignite a shift in the world that could help shift us from that uh, battle mentality to that men healing mentality you've mentioned? I am always hopeful, which is rare these days. Uh, I, I wouldn't say always, I would say I'm 95.2% hopeful. And I'm hopeful <laughs> because to me, um, the calamity of the world is that we operate from an age, of separation, uh, that you and I are separate. And we analyze things through this individualistic filter, whether we're nation states in conflict, I did work in North Korea and South Korea, and you know, all these places of separation in South Africa. And, and I've learned from those things that we're a lot more common than we think we are. And so consequently, if we operate from the point of what they call Ubuntu or our point of relationship rather than reaction, our point of relationship rather than separation. Everything shifts. And so consequently, we're always that far away from major change because it's a change in our angle of vision. It's a change in our perspective, and it's a change in our institutions and how they operate. So consequently, I've expanded this project I've had for a number of years called the Ubuntu Works Project. Uh, you can go to ubuntuworks.org. And Ubuntu Works has uses Ubuntu-based principles in a lot of our institutions. And I believe that the goal is to train and educate young people and our communities and engage in our workplaces, our financial institutions, our governmental international relations, and do them from a point of connectivity rather than a point of separation. And when we do that, things shift. And those are in many ways, um, those are 
that may sound theoretical, but I don't find it theoretical. It's um, uh, when I first learned about Ubuntu, uh, it was from Archbishop Tutu, and uh, it was the first week of the hearings around the Truth Commission in South Africa. And I'd gone to meet with him, and he, uh, he I was going to record a welcome to monitors who might come over from the U.S. to to observe the TRC process. And I sat down at the table and I pushed my tape recorder on. I mean, this was a guy who was, the whole world was looking at him at this time. And I felt real small and he seemed way up there. And I just said, uh, Archbishop, I wanna record this statement to, um, and he, uh, to monitors. And, and he said, yes, yes, yes. And he put his hand across the table on mine. He said, yes, but first let's say hi. And I was just, um, I, I, I slowed down. All of a sudden, I moved to human level with him on something very simple. simple, And I just engaged with him on this human level. And, and I said hi, and we talked then. And it was a beautiful moment. It was a practical application of relationship that we so often forget in our busy lives or in the way we approach conferences, meetings, podcasts, whatever it might be, is that there is a superhuman notion of connectivity. Secondly, I asked him, what is this Ubuntu? And a little smile came across his face and he said, um, uh, there's no direct translation in Western words because Ubuntu actually is was at that time in the interim constitution and the statute creating the Truth Commission said there shall be Ubuntu rather than victimization. I wanted to know what that was. And he said, we are human through our relations with others. It's the essence of being human. What I do to you, I do to myself. It's that the solitary individual is a contradiction in terms that we are corporate. This is may tie in later to Gary Davis and your movie because uh, the world is my country reflects that notion as well, that we are corporate, we are connected in a lot of ways. And he said, that's why people can come before this commission and laugh and cry and still feel joy and even be willing to say, I forgive. And so that just struck me to the core and has been a principle for me uh, for so long. And I think that Ubuntu a approach of an error of Ubuntu, an error of how we look at our world and our institutions can shift everything. Hmm. So here, Matt, Nelson Mandela was imprisoned by a cruel system that had, had oppressed him and, 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 and been so, caused so much suffering among so many people. Tell us about truth and reconciliation. Yeah, uh, he certainly played a key foundational role in the they miss him a lot in South Africa for many reasons uh, that we can talk about. But uh, Mandela had this unique perspective that he kept in his heart all along the way. He was a true fighter. He worked on, he was not opposed to there being a military wing of the ANC at the time to deal with um, certain issues or infrastructure. I mean, he was... Um, a, a, a revolutionary in the true sense of the word, because a revolutionary, as Dulla Omar, who was the Minister of Justice, used to tell us, 
a revolutionary is the person who believes in change and works for change. And it's been a demonized term in a lot of ways. But Mandela came out with an attitude that the chains he used to say of but that bound me also bound my oppressor. And he recognized this connectivity in that way. And he, um, we all have heard the stories potentially of him inviting his jailer to his inauguration and his having certain people in his government. But he had a way, um, I watched him once in this village in the trans sky talk in this large tent to these people who in, in Kosa. And he was there talking in Kosa with the clicking, you know, and the, uh, all of that. And, and it's a beautiful language. And the people and their exchange and connection with him was so beautiful. And I watched as he turned on a tap in a, in a village there who got water for the first time. And he understood so much that, um, that we are connected in so many, uh, so many ways that we are not separate. And he lived and breathed this principle in his leadership of a nation at that time. And so Mandela um, was certainly supportive, but it was a lot of architects of the ANC uh, who, wor of, who worked on these things, uh, uh, Dalla Omar, L.B. Sachs, other people who were foundational in the development of the Truth Commission and why it had pros and cons, and a lot of our discussion recently was the unfinished business of the TRC, like what didn't get done and how it impacts things today, because reparations and other things to deal with economic justice are certainly uh, problems still today in South Africa and around the world. So, but there was um, amazing, beautiful things that happened between people in the TRC within a community, watching people's uh, community rise up and say, we've met and this individual who had ordered a killing at a bus stop, who said he could never go home. And a community went out of the room and came back and said, we met as a community and we want the brother to know that we forgive him and he can come home. Mm. He can come home. Mm. These moments for those human beings were powerful. And we sometimes get too politically analytical in our analysis. Did this work? Was it a failure? Was it a success? Quantitatively. But it's like that starfish story of throwing them out into the ocean with a young boy and said, why are you doing that? There's so many. What difference can you make? And he says, it, I can make a difference to that one. And he throws it back in the water. I mean, it, we make a difference in those ways. And so I love what you all are doing in the podcast with your movie, what many people are doing all over this planet. It is a people-powered planet, and we forget that. We forget that in so many ways. So uh, much gratitude to you all. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, uh, yeah, people power is certainly kind of a, uh, the essence of what we, we see around the world. We see that... Uh, uh, Mightiest, the mightiest empires in the world with the greatest military force in the world uh, can't beat a people that they vastly outnumber, whether it's the 
uh, Chinese trying to control Vietnam for a thousand years, whether the French Empire trying to beat them, the U.S. Empire, or whether in Afghanistan it's the, uh, you know, the, the, the Russians trying to repress uh, them for years, and then us coming in with 20 years of war, and all we did is push them more into the hands of the Taliban and uh, never protected human rights or any of the things we claimed we were doing, just made it worse. Uh, and yet uh, there is an incredible power that people have, uh, and as you mentioned, Nelson Mandela did include the military side, but it seems to me perhaps even more powerful is when these movements have used nonviolence instead of violence, when these people-powered movements have recognized that they have the biggest power and that violence is not perhaps their most powerful tool. Uh, talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I advocate for something I call nonviolent advocacy. It's a legal concept using legal wellness type principles, but it's also a um, something that has been um, existing for so long in so many ways. Uh, Gandhi, as you know, was a lawyer in South Africa and uh, later went on with his principles so strongly in that way. Or you can take Martin Luther King in, in so many ways. And Martin Luther King, you know, he, if you look, I think it's in the Birmingham letter, he said, all life is interrelated. We're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. And he said, no peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. I mean, that is uh, a powerful Ubuntu statement, if you will, but it's that these nonviolent advocates have had as their foundational principle all along have had principles such as this around our connectivity. And so nonviolence comes up in so many ways. Um, I remember in the film you all have done, The World is My Country, Gary Davis says a line that um, you're, you know, he realized in shooting someone during the war, you're shooting an image of yourself. And that line really stood out to me. And I think that when we get to talk about the violence in our culture or our violence between governments or our violence in homes, and it's a sense of uh, people not having that empathetic connection, that thing that Jeremy Rifkin writes about in the empathic civilization, a really interesting study of empathy showing how we are soft wired for um, uh, empathy and compassion, not for violence. And so we have a lot of images to overcome. And uh, in South Africa last week, the week before, we were doing talks and dialoguing a lot about uh, the ways in which we can use these principles to move us forward and get us both inspired as well as to move our institutions forward positively. Well, tell me about your uh, recent trip to South Africa. I think you told me that uh, some of the people you met with had been starting to slide into despair. Yeah, it's um, as with our country in the level of divisiveness, there were a lot of similarities. There was the, you know, why we suffer from red and blue here in the States of being, um, being in a situation in which we are um, in conflict and 
tearing at each other in sad ways and and not everyone but enough that it's uh it's monopolizing the dialogue and so uh in south africa uh they've dealt with a lot of issues the issues they call corruption where new people in government took advantage of systems but i learned a lot of it is not the corruption that we think of as corruption which is everyone being paid and stealing money necessarily it's contracts going to friends of friends it's um lobbyists like big groups corporations controlling parliament uh having an influence on parliament disproportionately than perhaps they anticipated and so consequently those we would call lobbying in the united states whether it's big pharma whether it's uh, the nra or gun lobbies and such so a lot of our problems were similar problems and I feel like that's uh, the lesson you get when you cross borders. You, you begin to understand that what ties, unites us together um, is so much stronger than what divides us. And so in this trip, um, I came across, I, I, um, I'm, it was so wonderful for me. It was full circle after 25 years of doing all this work in South Africa in the 90s. And I, how often do you get to go full circle into things that impact our hearts so much? And I got to go back and have in-depth heart connections and talks with people I knew 25 years ago as if it hadn't skipped a beat and they've become judges or been members of parliament and have had different experiences having moved from activists to governing, which is a very difficult transition to make in this world. And so I... Uh, I had such a powerful experience and the young people and the students looking at alternative indigenous ways of conflict resolution, um, looking at things we were doing, um, dealing with um, different ways to address conflict and the excitement among students at the university for a new world. And these are students born after Nelson Mandela came to be president. I mean, you have to understand there's a whole generation there that have lived free technically. But the, one of the most powerful things Mandela ever told us group of to a group of lawyers back in like 96, he said, these rights enshrined in the Constitution, he said, are mere illusions unless we uplift the way people live their lives. Unless we do that, rights become kind of meaningless. And so a lot of times we fight for rights and we fight in courtrooms and otherwise, but the struggle in South Africa continues to uplift people from horrendous poverty who expected change to be quick as we expected change to be quick in our country. If you know, many of you know Van Jones and Van Jones made a comment about hope after the Obama election and what happened with after that and the hope we all shared at that time, like the major change was coming. And Van Jones said, uh, you can't hope and go home. <laughs> and uh, I, I found that really, and I shared that with people there, is that activism and getting involved and finding your place to be involved to make a difference to that one is so powerful. But also don't fear getting involved in the larger scale. We get cut off, I think, from what we see as the failure of our government to act, and we think they're going to do what they want. But you'd be surprised. You want to walk into the State Department and meet with someone on an issue tomorrow, you can set it up. 
you want to meet with the Senate Foreign Relations Commissioner, the Foreign Relations Committee staffers, you can set that up. Congress people are more accessible than you think. And our cynicism over so long has kept us from that. But what's also kept us is not coming in to point the finger at the problems, but to come in and point the finger at solutions. And so that's what I love dialoguing on, coming together. And this trip to South Africa created this wonderful dialogue around solutions for our world going forward when they have the most progressive constitution in the planet. They are very new democracy. And I was really able to share with them an outsider looking in that their world, their story is not yet written. Mm. And I think that's was inspiring for all of us to remember. Mm. Wow, that is so powerful. And I'm so, so fascinated that they focused on solutions because uh, that's what we want to hear. And I want to hear more about those. But first, let me take just a moment because uh, you mentioned access. Uh, when I was a, a high school student in Washington, D.C., uh, we, uh, we, we, a group of, uh, with a group of other students, uh, we started this High School Students for Better Education. And we went down to Congress. We cut up one of those big sheets with the names of all the congressmen and just divided them up like cards. And groups of two of us went to meet with congressmen. And they were kind of intrigued that these kids come knock on their door. So we actually got to speak to some. But I love that you mentioned that there in South Africa, they've got some of the keys with a, a, a real vision for how we move forward. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, there one, one interesting program, and I just got some material on it. That's the Human Rights Commission in South Africa is set up not just to deal with individual complaints, but look at human rights throughout the country. And they have just come up with a program called SHINE, Social Harmony Through National Effort. And I'll just show you that. Wow. <laughs> and keep your eyes on that one because it talks about the level of disharmony, poverty, polarization in the country is growing and deeply concerning phenomena. And it says um, they've looked at the challenges here and they're setting up a national effort to be agents of change, to deal with um, positive dialogue, how people talk with each other, holding family meetings to reduce uh, disharmony, finding certain platforms and diverse groups to bring people together, interject respect and compassion into um, efforts of South Africans everywhere, and Ubuntu, the wisdom of the ages into um, help, help us craft cross bridges to nurture the bonds of understanding, compassion, and respect. And where do they start? They're starting this year of um, greeting and getting people together, working with communities and otherwise. And I was so moved during the elections that in the election process of Mandela, the goal was not to hold a free and fair election. Of course, that was a goal. The goal was to create an atmosphere for a free and fair election, which was quite different. So they sent off mediators all around the countryside to points of conflict and had parties meet together. And I watched as people who had been battling or arguing got together and in the end got on the same page for the election and stood up and sang a prayer together. I mean, you create an atmosphere for peace, an atmosphere. Wow 
It involves more than rights, as Mandela said. It involves more than just this should be fair and free. It involves the atmosphere we create. So I love what the Human Rights Commission just starting in South Africa, and we want to follow that. But what I want to tell you that I think we forget, and it it, it goes back to, if you know, Paul Hawkins' talk at Bioneers around the um, blessed unrest in his book, where he had behind him scrolling the whole time, all these NGOs and nonprofits doing amazing work all over the world, thousands of them. And it made you think, wow, this is going on. And I'm, I just want to reaffirm that this is going on and how we focus on it. And the more shows we can get to talk about it, the more programs like that we can implement into school districts, into our, our workplaces, and use these principles, I think the greater changes that can happen to uh, bring diverse people together. But I think that's the leadership we need, and that's where people have to lead and the leaders will follow. Wow. Well, that, uh, yes, the people have to lead and the leaders will follow. That's so true. And uh, and that that connecting together, oh, crucial. And uh, when, when Gary and I would talk about this idea of how do we create this synergistic governance from the bottom up, uh, he imagined that uh, you had people forming groups like the Zoom group, but everybody could have an impact on on, on, on what's the shape of the, of the decisions of what the world wants. Uh, but you had more impact the more diverse your group was. Like if we're having this discussion and we've got people on both sides of any issue, you know, Arabs and Jews or uh, or uh, red states, you know, blue states or whatever, and these people are coming together and you're opening up with certain protocols that help you connect with your heart uh, to space with each other. And then you come to conclusions, as you said, like you did with that judge or any of these other other things, uh, then that has more impact. So. You you have you have a sort of toolkit built into the program that that helps us come to that uh, uh, that uh, uh, that sense of right of, of uh, well Gary called it synergy because it's more it's not you know one side is 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 you know it's my side one of your side the other is we compromise I give a little you give a little we're not so happy but synergy is where something new is created that we didn't even think of before we came here because we're coming together in that heart and love space and he thought by creating you know, these all over the world, these kind of heart love space connections called, you know, synergistic groups on the Bucky Fuller geodistic sphere uh, pattern, that we can create an interactive system where we can bring to the top the highest and best wisdom of humanity, and that that would have incredible power to shift the world. Then that's when the leaders jump in to follow. If this is the will of the people of the world, we're getting on board. All the, all the companies fight against stuff until uh, suddenly they realize that's where it's going. And then they all claim, well, we're out in front on that issue. So, so that was a synergistic way of coming together as a planet. Uh, what do you see about that? And then we'll turn it over to questions after that. Yeah, I, I think that we, um, we have to change our thinking and our approach. And that involves us as activists too. I do a principle I call relational activism. You can learn more of these things too on my, at ericsorotkin.com. Com, which is another site. Um, the, the reason is relational activism is how we even talk in our own languaging about us and them, how we demonize and say they're evil, we're good. And Solzhenitsyn was proud of saying that the line between good and evil runs through everyone's heart and who's willing to cut out a piece of their own heart. It's, it's, it's changing that thinking. It's what Gary said in your movie, 
I think he talked about moving from like the we separate country thinking to us thinking and to looking at sovereignty of the whole. And I think, and Einstein said, we have to change our way of thinking to think about these things differently. There's a great Einstein quote on that. So um, people have known that we have to change this type of thinking, but thinking of it intellectually, talking about it is one thing, applying it is another thing. And that's probably a good segue into the questions because the ones in the chat room are just these small issues that uh, I want to address because, you know, ending war and a few others. So um, perhaps we'll move into those and we can talk about some of the practical applications. Excellent. Go ahead, Melanie, with the question period. Thank you, Arthur. My goodness, Eric, what wisdom you were you were passing on from what you've learned. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. And what unites us is stronger than what divides us. That's incredible. And point the finger, finger at the solution. That's get away from you're wrong, the solution here. Let's look it over. Incredible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We have questions for you and comments. So let's see, Quanta. Quanta, if you could go ahead. She's gonna be, there's no video for her, but go ahead, Quanta. Thank you. Um, well, personally, and I think also nationally, we should be very, very concerned about the uprise of white Christian nationalism mm -hmm. in the United States. And if we are, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we're pacifists or anything like that, but if we passively just become observers, we are going to be participant persecuted people. And, and I don't know how we can make the voice of peace and peace lovers and promoters to be more wider and, mm -hmm. and more louder <laughs> so yes. that, uh, that they know that we are not, you know, sleeping at the, uh, uh, what do you call? Anyway, I think you know what I mean. Thank you so much. Thank you and appreciate the question so much. I uh how you know it's something we all are challenged by which is how to make our voices have the greatest impact and be heard louder and i think what's happened is we've become too passive and i don't mean that i mean passive versus active passive in our approach to um thinking the world rejects us or that peace is a dirty word i mean i remember that after the iraq war it was tough being a, when that first started after September 11th and being a peace activist, that was tough. You were really in a small group and isolated and demonized. And it became, um, uh, and retaliated against sometimes. And so having a wider voice for peace to me means we can no longer shy away from, uh, from what it means. And I, I think the word peace has been politicized too much. And so the word peace, we can go in, I wanna teach peace in the schools and then people say that whether it's a nationalist group or, oh, you're teaching, you know, you, this is, uh, uh, you know, things that are uh, you brainwashing our kids and this, and it's like, what? You know, the US is a signature to the charter of the UN around peace. It's the supreme law of the land. It is a treaty. It is higher than the Supreme Court of the United States. And we forget that and some of those international principles. So it's, I don't, but then we go into a battle about the word and we go into battle about peace. And if we're looking at programs to end school bullying and violence, 
and we're doing programs to um, to enhance relationships between students and their communities. Huh, wait a minute. All of a sudden, the way I've characterized that is not polarizing. It's not politicized. Most people agree with that. Just like we forget that when we talk with people we have profound differences with, their fear is sometimes fear for safety for their kids, right or wrong, in their communities, don't want violence. They want to be able to walk their streets fine. They want a lot of things that everybody wants in rich and poor communities alike. And so consequently, we um, need to take our voice of peace, perhaps explore the languaging we use into um, classrooms, into school training programs for teachers, into our workplaces around mediation skills to reduce conflict and resolve conflict in that way. I have a book out this last week on surviving and thriving at work. And it's, it uses those principles of how to get along differently in relationship in the workplace. And so uh, can we get into workplaces? Can we, do we look at principles of corporate social responsibility? And there's some great material on that. And so how do we get into all of that in a way that I think is super effective? And uh, can we take these things into uh, conflict resolution in our communities, in our police forces? There was a policeman in our integrative law workshop in South Africa who works with police on conflict resolution issues. And are we, um, we're shy. We think we have to control the political dialogue, that we need those 51 votes or nothing will change. And I, we do need those 51 votes in the Senate for numerous reasons. But what I could tell you is we don't need, um, we don't need all of that first. We need to get the wider voice of peace out. And that taps down those voices, whether you call them white Christian nationalists, others. It gives people the courage to stand up to other people, not in like this, but in, in dialogue and talk and sometimes with just naming things over and over again, exposing, holding that mirror up. That's a big thing in conflict resolution. When you as a bully at work hold the mirror up to the bully and they see their conduct, it, it throws them off. They'll tend to go a different direction. So we have to corral these theories and certainly name them and put them out there. But I think the systemic way to do it is get the voice of peace into all of our institutions. Wonderful. And I love the way we can talk to each other. Yes, we can talk to each other. It's wonderful. Um, yes, we have lots of questions. So Steve, you're our next. Yeah, Eric, you actually answered uh, partly the question I had, which was, uh, I'm involved with the uh, peace movement here in Massachusetts. And there's a lot of uh, talk about how to deal with the Ukraine uh, issue uh, because there's because obviously the implications you know that it could escalate to a nuclear war. There's a lot of loose talk about um, uh, uh, Russians are going to use uh, tactical nuclear weapons, and there's a lot of concern about that. But even in, even in the peace movement, there is a lot of infighting going on between those who want to take a more traditional approach and try to influence our legislators to vote a certain way. And then there are others who are maybe taking a more, I would say maybe that Ubuntu approach of trying to uh, do it in a more uh, organic fashion. 
Um, but it, it's a lot of times there's a lot of insularity because you're just, you know, you're on Zoom calls and you're talking to the same people all the time and maybe you're going back and forth and you have agreements and disagreements, but are we really getting the, getting the uh, message out there and how do we, how do we make it, uh, uh, expand the message in a more organic way? Because if I start talking about, well, we need to talk to the Russians more to understand their point of view. Oh, you're, you're a Putin apologist. Uh, you immediately get the, the finger pointing and uh, if people even want to talk about it, usually people don't want to talk about, um, they want to talk about uh, baseball or they want to talk about uh, gas prices. Uh, average people don't really want to talk about nuclear war. They don't want to talk about uh, uh, war because it's just, it's, it's unpleasant to deal with. Uh, so you've actually given me some ideas. Maybe we should approach this as talk about what we want to achieve a positive thing instead of talking about the negative and the negative obviously you have to understand that but how do we go in a positive direction and i see i get i i'm a student of russian i lived in the soviet union in the 80s i i i get the news in russian on my phone and i and they and they will announce oh 200 ukrainians were eliminated um as, as, as if, if there's pride in that and then of course in the u.s side uh, there are videos on YouTube showing uh, Russian tanks being blown up with 1.2 million views. And like, who who enjoys watching uh, this kind of violence and killing? We obviously need a change in the the way people think. Um, you know that that they 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 see this as just the the other is us. You know that when we, we destroy the other side, it's destroying us. And how do we create that consciousness? And obviously, we uh, I'll try to wrap up my question. We're trying to. Uh, build it in an organic way, but I'm trying to understand how we as a peace movement can transcend or just as individuals can transcend, you know, our, our Zoom calls and actually get out there and, and have influence in this post-COVID world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, small question. Um, let's, uh, and I get this, every, every workshop, every talk I give, everything I'm involved with, this conflict obviously is on everybody's mind, the Ukrainian-Russian aspect of what do these principles do for ending a war in, in so many ways. And uh, first, we have experienced ending war in the sense that we, we met in Vietnam, we met in Paris and had meetings like over a hundred times between the two sides, over a hundred times. And I look at we're trying to deal with the North Korea issue in this. And we don't, until you do X, we're not even meeting. We're not sitting in the same room. And that's been the US position on negotiations. And so, yeah, a lot of people feel that negotiations somehow uh, can, um, can lead uh, to manipulation or delay or, or someone may be winning over someone else. And they missed that point. Churchill said it's better to talk, talk, talk than fight, fight, fight. It is a uh, talking is essential. And I think perhaps as peace organizations and others, uh, other individuals who want to do outreach to um, similar organizations in Russia uh, and other places, not to tell them what we're going to do for them, but to listen and to see what is needed at this point in time because certain things are needed by the Russian people who get caught up in this as well. And we tend to demonize all nation. And unfortunately it's the governments, but what this is providing is an opportunity for us to talk about different issues. And I think this is where we could retreat on and dialogue and, and brainstorm on is our languaging and our approach because um, the issue of gas prices, 
opens up all kinds of stories, story, you know, issues around fossil fuel issues, around the OPEC and where the, our relationship to Saudi Arabia and other things that were in the media today. Uh, it opens up discussions about it isn't just one thing that's raising your gas price. Here's the story about gas profits. So what can we do to make, um, uh, would you like to have some supplemental uh, payment to make gas prices lower for six months for a year? Uh, certain people who may be opposed to government programs as socialists probably would like the idea of some assistance. Can we get certain other corporations to perhaps fund a fund that makes it a joint partnership between corporations and government such that we're using corporate profits without taxing corporations and using the big evil T word, but we are involving them in the solutions to helping everyday people deal with the gas price issue. Can we, to get people coming to the table, you know, what can be done for around the world? You remember in the 80s, the Witness for Peace program, and maybe it went on beyond that, but I remember in Central America, citizens decided to go to front lines as witnesses for peace to put their bodies on the line. And are we to a point as a world and a people-powered world, if we use that term, to where um, 100,000 people sign up to, to hold across the border of somewhere in some way and be an entity for peace from all over the world? What would even the organizing of that, getting ready and moving that into place do for the dialogue around what's going to happen to them and what a war crime is. I think naming war crimes, there's discussion now about the International Criminal Court that had been not tapped down in the US for a long time. Well, how do you hold him accountable? Well, there's no mechanism to do that. It ties into what um, uh, Gary Davison in, in that film talks about in, in Arthur Melanie's film. It, it becomes a... Um, uh, can we set up an alternative way in which we uh, approach these issues? So I think there are um, there's wisdom over the time in that regard of, of how do we as a world community respond to violence. And I think when we're responding to violence in the Ukraine, we can't forget Yemen and we can't forget what's the battles in Rwanda and the different places that have gone on that have caused the media and the attention of the United States to go to uh, uh, white conflicts when people are dying in so many places that way. So what do those conflicts need in that vein? Um, you know, food, basics, what kind of programs can we support to do that? But what are we doing with our institutions, including our government institutions, to have them look at techniques that are different? And have we ignored the private sector money, which is, is billions and billions of dollars? And, and, they, and can we create the right programs that bring people together as well as address problems? Then I think systemically we're making some positive change. My goodness, Eric, this is so rich. We are, and, and we have more questions. Right now, we'll go to Glenn. I was just on Hi. TV show. Glenn yes, yeah, Glenn, I taped TV show yesterday, and it'll be available uh, soon. Uh, the, the, we all live, most of us here live in the United States, which is horribly, horribly polarized. 
and I'm inviting Eric to think beyond what you said in your answer to Quanta's question about the, the hardcore white nationalists, what else could you say about how to depolarize the polarization in the US using the principles that you've laid out? Yeah, I, I think one of the first ones, and people get tired of hearing about education, but education is, it's really essential. We have a lot of principles where I feel like we can, um, we have to start building a generation, frankly, who look at the world as connected rather than separate, that looks through a Ubuntu filter rather than a separation filter. And, and that involves some of the education that's required. However, how we deal with community issues brings that to the forefront. How do we create forums for voices to be heard? This is a very difficult time because as we know, truth has, quote unquote, has been a, um, a very fluid concept. And some people don't, you know, don't want to hear at all what another side is saying. But there are places within schools, there are places within neighborhoods, there are other places where, um, where we have, as I spoke before, on common interests. And I think we do talk, uh, as was mentioned in, um, uh, in that way, um, we do talk about um, our, um, our differences a lot. And we, we can come, I think, uh, to relanguage approaches to problems in ways that more people understand our commonality. So we have to be modeling that. Uh, I think that um, the media and the role that they play has become a very um, problematic situation. But if you think back, you can say, oh, it didn't used to be like that. Well, we used to have something called the Fairness Act. And the Fairness Act required equal time on media outlets for things like that. And perhaps we need to be able to hear more diverse voices and be able to do that so we're not always talking just at each other. Uh, I think that um, learning various mediation techniques our, ourselves as individuals can make a huge difference when we learn, instead of saying it's your problem, it's a shared problem. This is what we do in mediations. Instead of saying this is an inflexible demand, you acknowledge this is what you aspire to have happen and people say yes. And when people are heard, I can't impress loudly enough how active listening, the, the old PT training, parent effectiveness training, how we listen to people is a skill we have lost. And I think within communities, instead of convincing people of our view, instead of saying, yes, you believe that, but this and this and this, if you don't know about reflection and you say, so you believe that this, um, uh, this is a conspiracy of various people and that it's going to really impact our country and may have an effect on your children. And that person said, yeah, that is what I'm saying. I've been in so many rooms where the magic happens then because all of a sudden you're not saying you're wrong, I'm right, but this, listen to me, listen to me. You're saying, I heard you, I heard you. And listening in the art of communication is a, a kind of dying uh, as, uh, art in some ways in this divisiveness. And so it's as much a problem of divisive views as it is a problem of not hearing. And us not hearing them, whoever them is, 
of course, Ubuntu breaks it down a bit and says, well, them is us, but that's maybe a little too philosophical. But in reality, when you then communicate and you open a channel that is empathetic, amazing shifts happen. And, you know, I would like to see our divisiveness come to where we, we don't fall into, Archbishop Tutu once said that we don't want to become like the system we oppose. We don't want to be like the system we oppose. And so consequently, we want to be like, um, we want to model something really different and not, um, uh, not a sort of one-sided, we're right, you're wrong, you're left, you're, you're right, you're whatever the situation, actually it's left, right, but um, any other situation that we can do to, um, to open these channels of dialogue, to talk with people, um, to make sure that our schools, I mean, this whole thing around critical race theory, I mean, where was the, where were, I mean, there was some outrage about the pressure being put on something that is teaching about racism and about historical and institutionalized racism. But maybe the view is, if you asked a person on the right, is there institutionalized socialism within our institutions? They would say, yes, it's there. Uh, should we be teaching our kids to, to watch out for it? Oh, yes, we should. I mean, maybe there should be an idea and talk about, okay, when one view gets into an institution, it corrupts the minds of people. Oh, yes, it does. I mean, all of a sudden you're having a creative dialogue around an issue and instead, we just wanted to say, well, you're a bigot because you're not letting us teach this. And when you name call people and you use labels, which the left has as much a problem as the right, you know, the label of a fascist, it's very nice. Fascism is a, a terrible institutional system and something may be fascist. But if I reduce you to being a fascist, then I am labeling you and I am pigeonholing you and I'm saying you are not a complete human being. And where can dialogue happen in that scenario? So shifting to what I call language of peace for us all is really essential too. I'm very pleased that we have representatives, our wonderful, um, uh, well, actually they're, they're getting us on, they're got us on Cape Town TV, CTV in South Africa. And we're so honored that uh, they are helping us. And I'd like to introduce, Isaiah has a question. Macbeth is there as well. Let's see if we can hear from them. Go ahead, Isaiah. Yes, how can we get those kind of information? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Isaiah. So the question is basically getting information when you're in Africa and specifically about the World Service Authority had, it was very difficult for him to find information about that. But what what is your experience, Eric, about getting information about world citizenship and um I think you raise a very important question and one that people always have to remember. And that is uh, in, that people receive information differently, people process information differently, and there's a necessity to uh, get information out in different types of forums. As I understand it from my recent trip there, 
in South Africa, just because you put something online on the internet, most people are not going to have access to that in that vein. And so a lot of people listen to radio. And the question becomes, how can we set up and be supportive of some alternative radio stations or alternative radio programs that can start to reach more people in a country that isn't broadband and internet connected in that way. So we have to look at how people uh, get information, first of all. Uh, I think that working together, the, what the internet can provide us a chance to do is that if people on the ground within a country can find the most effective means of communication, whether it's like a radio show or something else, then we as an international community can help funding and helping support for and bring ideas and guests into that will bring international perspectives to a more local community in that vein. I think we could look at programs like that. I think information I'm getting is what I got when I was there was that the same kind of problems. A lot of times you can get radio stations and other people who are giving information that is so divisive and so uh, painful and so us and them and that, this kind of thing. And there's nothing like party politics in South Africa. So in that sense, the, the system becomes getting through um, getting to get organizations like the ANC and other parties to, um, to find some common ground that isn't just about their self-interest. That's always a challenge. We run into the same things with Democrats and Republicans here. So consequently, how do you get the information in a format that will be effective? And there is, for example, in the law, and there's a South African who works, some South Africans who work with something called conscious contracts. And conscious contracts uses sometimes um, uh, more readable books or even cartoon books to show people agreement in different ways, in materials that are understandable. We as lawyers get into all this legalese and it's very separate from people. And so how can we get information to people in formats that move them in a lot of different ways? And in South Africa, you have 11 official languages. So that complicates the matter too. So what I, I think is um, where I look, what I'm trying to do with the Ubuntu Works Project is have a coalition. One of the, the realms is a coalition and group. And maybe since we're coming toward the end too, if I could screen share for one minute here, um, this yes. diagram. And this is, um, if you see this here, this is the Ubuntu Works Projects. And one of the things is to get a, um, a coalition together, a web set of ideas and skill sets and resources and creative approaches from all over the world and do that. Have it in the educational realm, the workplaces we talked about. We want a research realm that people can um, show how empathy and otherwise is productive because those corporations aren't going to change unless they think it affects their bottom line positively. And we think it does. And we need to do that. And so how do we use traditional indigenous models, which in Zulu conflict resolution and others that can 
be integrated into these things? And how do we deal with larger issues that help us understand our common interests in activism and in, um, in democracy? And so I think that as we, um, you could go to the UbuntuWorks.org and send me a note that you're interested in some aspect of this or, or you have ideas or tell me your Ubuntu story. But in reality, um, I think we have to serve these non-dominant cultures because the dominant culture is separation. The non-dominant cultures all over the world have had Ubuntu and connectivity, great wisdom, things we have to get from them, what we can give back in reparation, if you will, to the destruction we have wreaked on this planet through all kinds of sources, whether it's colonialism, slavery, climate, you can name it across the board. What we can give back is these packaged skill sets these ways to deal with conflict, these stories of the world um, uh, coming together or the um, information services. We can create a web that then they can take out through community dialogues, through radio stations, through I've got a school in South Africa wants to work on bullying issues within schools. We can then be telling their stories to other people. If we build our net around a reframed piece, I think that we can institute this into our world and really make a difference in your smaller communities, in rural places all around the world, and in countries that don't have the access to the information that we can provide. So that's wow. how I do it. Wow, yes. And, um... I thank you for mentioning the domination and the opposite is partnership uh, view of society or have societies. And also um, Isaiah just wanted to, to recommend they can make their own platform, but what you said was incredible. And they you, you two should connect quickly, quickly. I'm Eric, time check. Uh, how many more questions? Can you answer three more questions if they're super quick? It's 11. It's, it's not if the questions are quick, it's mostly if the answers are quick. <laughs> so okay. I will do my best. Well, it all depends on you if you have to get off, I think, quickly. And let me just say in the chat room, I am familiar with Marshall Rosenberg's and nonviolent communication. And NVC, as it's called, would be a Ubuntu-based principle. It's a technique that should be in a database of so many things as we structure laws, communities, and a relationship going forward. Excellent. Okay, well then, uh, Joanne? This is kind of like a summary question. Um, I'm trying to think about takeaways. You know, when you when you when the program is over, what are the quick takeaways here? And are there? I guess my question is: Are there simplified, stated principles that you have developed from your range of experiences that you can share? In other words, things that you can put on a button, things that you can put on a on a bumper sticker, um, are you know words that are trying to, in a in a simplified fashion, say what you mean? Sure. Thank you. And I think that. Uh... Um, I'm saying it already, but yeah, yeah. Well, I already stole one bumper sticker with the leaders will follow. But um, I do think that um, we have to come up with a very the elevator pitch. We need to talk about our world is in a world of separation and and disconnect and divisiveness. What are the solutions to bring us together to listen better? to um, uh, move us 
to uh, a more uh, understanding place, a more peaceful place, and a place that helps conflict be a part of everyday life, but not a part of war and and a part of um, despair, if you will. I have about 12 principles that are called Ubuntu-based principles, active listening, um, mindfulness, um, uh, the different types of listening techniques. Uh, there's a lot in the slides in there. And go there. You can um, snag it from my site later or from this link. It's on YouTube. If you do YouTube and Ubuntu and my name, Saratkin, you'll find it. it I would say go there because I worked through about 12 different um, principles to start our new um, uh, toolkit. You know the Maslow expression that if all you have in your toolkit is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, we're looking to expand that toolkit, and I'd urge you to look at, at some of those. And it also talks about how I've applied it to international, the simple terms to international relations. Let go of the rope. That's when I, it's a tug of war. If you're not pulling and if you let go, what happens? They either fall down or there's no tug of war. You have to figure out what happens then. Hmm. And so there are certain principles that can be applied. Love that, love that. Oh, good. Now we go to Andre. Andre, go right ahead. Thank you. Namaste, Melanie and Arthur and Glenn. And nice to meet you, Eric. Nice to meet you too. I think what you're uh, proposing is exactly what's needed throughout the whole world. And uh, so I propose a macro system of, in addition to the micro, and that would be a global movement of nonviolence, that nonviolence is the umbrella to bring everyone together for that message. And uh, especially now with the war and the world crises, we need something. And so it, it leads right into a new narrative of nonviolence, committing to nonviolence, and as a solution that uh, you referred to earlier, that people working together for humanity, as a, as a make it simple and direct, that that's what our objective is, that's what we're promoting to people, not our differences. By working together for the commonality, we solve our differences. And so for just in, uh, as for the message, um, I've done a lot of research and who would be the best messenger? And there's, I was very fortunate to be connected with Howard Zinn, the activist and author. And he lived in the same community uh, that I do. I was his real estate agent as a, before I knew who he was even. And he said to me that the best representatives of nonviolence are women. And so I, prom I promote the fact that there's women have an advantage to promote nonviolence, but it's not just about women. It's about saying we can work together and we can uh, change ourselves and change our cultures of violence. So uh, what do you think, we, do we, don't we need the macro and the micro? And I'd yeah. love to talk more about it with you at some time too. I uh, I think we do, and I I I, th I think the problem is the macro gets kind of dissed because it doesn't deal with the micro, and people want their life improved. They don't want theories as such. Um, and I think nonviolence. I 
I'm consider myself nonviolent. And the question becomes in nonviolence for organizing around a principle, it's a difficult principle to order organize around. That's in part because if someone comes up and hits me in the face, uh, is my reaction nonviolent? And it may be at the ultimate basis and on a spiritual level and how I will respond, I, we can all work towards something higher. But to achieve a, a movement around that, most people, uh, including people on the right, if you would, would say, you know, they mess with my family, I'm going to mess with them. And, and that's because you're scared, you're upset, you're, you're afraid, you're, you are worried about uh, the future, whatever the emotion is behind that, that's a very legitimate feeling. And so how is it to get over the issues of eye for an eye makes the whole world blind? I, you know, that's the Gandhi thing, of course. But the, I think we have to watch when we go for the macro, we're not alienating uh, it's there has to be a universality adopted that that builds the understanding toward a world of nonviolence mm. or a world of um, where we don't resolve our conflicts through violence. What can that work like look like? Um, and I agree with what you said. I, Francis Moore LePay said, when we see through the eyes of others, it exposes key information, assumptions, prejudice, and values, needs all are all essential to finding solutions. It deepens our understanding of problems, offering more solutions when we actually see through the eyes of other people. So that came to mind. And I guess um, what I'll end with in here, because I think we're toward the end here, is um, what I call a moment of Zen, which is um, uh, in light of you, you bringing up Howard Zen, Living as other beings should live in defiance of all that's bad is itself a marvelous victory. To be hopeful in bad times is not foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is not only a history of cruelty, but of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex world will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. Wow. And so um, that can say it all. So I, I do appreciate you bringing in um, um, Professor Zint on that. And I think these wisdom points, whatever they may be, get, the comments from South Africa were so crucial. How do you get these in a format that people understand, are drawn to, and um, the last comment by Joanna was, was something that was, how can you get them to be something that we can um, take away mm. and implement? Mm. Talking is nice, but action and being an active witness in the world is the best. That was beautiful. Oh my, oh, this whole thing, Eric. Thank oh. you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So much appreciation thank to you. you. For having me. Our pleasure. I'm going to send it back to Arthur for the close. Arthur, take it away. Well, again, this is just extraordinary. We love having you on. We hope we'll have a, a ongoing, continuing dialogue with you. Uh, we'll even offline here. And uh, thank you. It is uh, remarkable and uh, brings things together in a beautiful way. Well, thank you for joining us. And we hope everyone will join us each and every week here on the 
People Powered Planet podcast at peoplepoweredplanet.com. And uh, uh, let everyone know about how they can see the world is my country. Uh, next week, we're going to have an, another extraordinary guest. We're going to have Harvey Wasserman, who is a uh, uh, author, radio host, activist, uh, uh, working on bending the arc of history toward peace, love, and understanding, plus justice, uh, at solartopia.org. Solartopia. Uh, he's also active with uh, KPFK on Pacifica, Los Angeles, etc. So join us next week for that. And before we close completely, we are uh, over the hour. I wish we had time for even more questions, but uh, we do want to give a quick close and let Eric, I know you have to go. So tell us just a little more about how uh, we can join uh, uh, Ubuntu, Ubuntu Works and how we can get copies of your extraordinary books. Well, thank you. Most importantly, go on the site, ubuntuworks.org. Put your name in there. Let's stay in touch. Let's do that. Witness is my memoir. It has about the Navajo peacemaker courts. It has about South Africa chapters. It has about Korea peacemaking. So go read that. Send me your thoughts. Send me your questions. Throw it at me. Do whatever you're going to do and uh, step up and do that. But get involved in any way you can. Carry any of this forward, I hope, into your dreams and change the imaginative picture of your world. And if you could do that, believe me, it shifts. So thank you. Imagineer a new world. That's what we're all about. Change that imaginative picture of the world and we can change the world. So thank you and continue to join us each and every week. Please become a member. Uh, click on the link where you become a member of the People Powered Planet so we can continue to do this program. Uh, join us each and every week on the People Powered Planet. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.